Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. My guest today is the novelist Patrick Gale. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. So, first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, I have been a novelist pretty much all my working life. I started in my mid-early 20s, really, um, and was incredibly lucky to get my first two novels, which were wafer thin, uh, accepted. And pretty soon after that, I started living off nothing but writing. Um, and I haven't really looked back. My books, I suppose you could categorize them as being literary ish, <laughs> in that they, <laughs> they, they're the sort of books that get reviewed in the TLS and, and you know, grown up places, but they also have a couple of times now been picked by Richard and Judy. So they're, 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 they're trying to be that chimera, the, the literary novel that sells. <laughs> I guess. Um, and on the side, I've always had an interest in screenwriting as well. In fact, the first writing I did as a teenager was plays. My first great love was drama. I wanted to be an actor, not a writer. Um, and so that screenwriting has gone along in the background, really. A lot of people don't realise that you can make a very good living writing films that never get made and TV shows that never get commissioned because a lot of producers can't imagine how a project's going to work until they read a script. And if you're prepared to work for not that much money, um, but you want to learn the craft, I discovered it was a very good way of getting my feet under the table was was uh, agreeing to write film scripts on spec. Um, and you know, we're, we're getting there gradually. So my first original TV show uh, finally got made a couple of years ago, and that, that won an Emmy, which was rather amazing. So I think off the back of that, um, I can now officially call myself a screenwriter as well as a novelist. <laughs> well, I think you could anyway. If you get paid to write a screenplay, I think it's fair to be able to call yourself a screenwriter. Well, you know how it is. But when you mention what you do to other people, they often say, ooh, can I, have I seen anything you've written? And then you have to admit that actually nothing you've written has ever been made, which is a bit embarrassing. <laughs> but as you say, that's not at all uncommon in the movie business. I have had one or two other screenwriters on the show. And, you know, that's people who aren't in the business don't quite realise just how much gets written and paid for that, as you say, never makes it to screen. Yeah, it's it's a hugely speculative business. And for my own sanity, I'm very glad I've had novel, novel writing going on alongside it, because at least when I write a novel, I know it'll see the light of day. Whereas when you work for a TV production, you can get terribly overexcited by dreaming of what might happen and how much you might earn and all that. And then it has a way of just going up in smoke quite suddenly. Um, which, which I think is not good for your mental health. I, I don't know how people who only do screenwriting can cope with that. It is, yes, I, I agree. It is very taxing on one's mental health. But yeah, I know what you mean about the the sanctuary of writing a novel, if you like. I mean, even in cases I've written novels that have never seen the light of day, and I've written one or two that probably never will see the light of day. And I don't just mean when I was starting out, I mean, you know, recently. But there's still there's still things that you have completed, that things exactly. you've made. Yeah. Yes. It's that sense of completion that's important, I think. Well and without the sense of 
doing it at someone else's behest that you often get when, especially when you've been commissioned to write a screenplay, it's almost always not your idea. It's not your property. You know, it is very much a sort of job for hire and there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a very different mental state to coming up with a story that you then turn into, yeah, a novel or a novella. Totally. And I think, I think for the novelist, of course, you have the luxury of an unlimited budget. Um, you can make whatever happen, happen. Uh, but it's also quite lonely. You're not collaborating. It's entirely down to you. Whereas when I'm working on a screen project, I really, I do relish the collaboration. I love working with a director and developing an idea with them. Um, so I think there's, there's a happy, happy, I, I've currently got a happy balance, I hope, between the two. It certainly sounds like it, yeah. So let's let's rewind a little to uh, the novel writing. And you say, as you say, you were very lucky to have your first couple of novels picked up when you were still quite young. But going back before then, what made you, especially if you had this interest in drama, what made you, well, decide that you wanted to write rather than act and then turn to novels? Well, I, it's hard to pinpoint. I think I always had a facility. I think because... Like a lot of writers, I was an omnivorous reader. Um, I felt entirely comfortable writing. It, it's always felt like something I, I was confident doing. And I think for that reason, I never imagined it could become a career because it was always a pleasure. So I, I'd always thought, oh, well, it's something I'll do in the background. I suppose if I if I asked myself as a 17-year-old what my vision of my ideal future would have been, it would have been to be a kind of Dirk Bogard figure, so acting but but writing on the side. Um, and I think writing stories especially was something I, I'd always loved doing. I mean, I, I wrote plays as a teenager, but they were they were terrible, really. Um, you were a teenager, to be fair. Yeah, I was a teenager, <laughs> and I'd done. I was doing a lot of acting. My school had an amazing drama department. And I was a big fish in a very small pool. And the same was true of my writing. So I was getting lots of stories published in school magazines and so on, um, which made me think I could do anything, which, of course, I couldn't. Um, and then going away to university was a very good corrective. It made me realize that I was a very small fish in a very big pool. And it silenced me for three years on the writing side. I just did loads and loads of acting. So I think that's why in my early 20s, acting had rather taken centre stage for me, to excuse the pun. Um, and I wrote those first novels largely to entertain myself as a sort of project, really. Um, the first one, in fact, was written as a mischievous entry for the very first Betty Trask prize, because I was outraged that this prize, this new prize, was entirely for romantic fiction. And I set out to write a kind of anti-romantic romance. Um, but once an agent took an interest and sat me down, bought me lunch and said, look, you can do this. So I want to read more. I, I rather woke up to it and thought, well, actually, this could be easier than a soul-destroying soul -destroying round of audition failures. I still enjoy acting. I do, as you know, these days, the writing industry requires us all to perform at book festivals and I record all my own audiobooks as well and I really enjoy that side of things but um, when I look at friends of mine contemporaries from uni who went on to become professional actors I am so glad that's not <laughs> how I'm making my living. 
it, it's not the easiest life at all, is it? Oh God, no, no, no. <laughs> and I think it's if you if you're remotely thin-skinned, it must be very tough indeed. So yes, I, I it, it's almost. I mean, I, it didn't happen by accident, but it's almost as though it did. Um, one thing led to another. I, I started getting commissions to write articles and book reviews, which were a, that was a very nice way of supplementing my tiny income from my, my early novels. But it also bolstered my sense of myself as a writer, as somebody who could say on their passport, I am a writer. I've always found it interesting that you're one of those authors who does record all your own audiobooks. In fact, when we, when you and I first met, I believe you were just about to start recording uh, a book the, you know, the following week. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it was an, a change of publisher that made it happen. My, my previous publisher, HarperCollins, who published me for over, over 10 years, nearly 15 years, um, were adamant they only wanted to use actors, uh, which I found frustrating because the actors they used were often um, clearly rather underpaid and barely bothered to read the novels first. And I knew I could do a better job of it. And then my new publishers, Tinder Press, heard me performing at a book festival, I think, and just said, well, this is silly. Of course, you must record your own books. But they then, having acquired all my backlist, got me to sit down um, and over the course of one exhausting year record over 10 novels. It, it does take it out of you. <laughs> so you went back and redid your whole back catalogue. I did. And that was a very strange experience because, of course, you, you finish a book, it gets published, you move on to the next one. You very rarely go back to it um, unless you're writing a sequel or something. And so I was having to reread books I, I hadn't thought about in years. And it was oddly, it was excruciating on the one hand because I kept having to read passages that I simply wouldn't write now. But it was also rather moving. It was like communing with my younger self. Um, and I kept noticing little bits. I thought, oh, that, that shows promise. <laughs> Keep it up, Gail, um, which is rather fun. And I, I had to resist the temptation to rewrite, rewrite as I was reading. Oh, yes. Good Lord. That must be. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I can well imagine that. Um I know exactly what you mean about rereading old works. It's it is always very strange to go back to something that, as you say, you know, we writers tend to keep moving forward, um, and I think we evolve and progress sometimes without realizing it. Like to us, in the moment when we're writing, it feels like we're just writing the same way we always have, and you, it takes going back to something that was produced five, ten, or more years ago to realize how differently you wrote then to how you wrote now. It's a very strange phenomenon. It is strange. I, I often wonder whether we're actually preparing for the next novel unconsciously as we're writing the current one, um, because each book for me certainly seems to bounce off the one before. They, they react against each other. So if I write a, a very dark book, my next book might have more sunshine and light in it. If I write a, an historical novel, the next one might well be more contemporary. I, there's a reactive process, but I, I'm a great, um, I'm very, very critical of myself. And I, I find it very hard to let work go. Um, and that's where adapting work of mine for the screen has been very interesting because it's a chance to go back and improve on it. Uh, I'm currently working on a television version of my historical novel, A Place Called Winter, and I'm not remotely precious about throwing the whole thing up in the air and rebuilding it because, as I see it, the story is one thing. 
the novel is just one version of that story and the screenplay will be another version. So this, it's as if the events are happening in a sort of continuum at the far side of a space and these different versions are just different takes on those events. And it, it, it can be really exciting to go in and take a character who didn't get a say on the page and in the screen version let them have their say, give them some space and see how that changes the dynamic of the story. So it's almost as if there's this sort of perfect ideal, this Socratic ideal almost of the story and everything that you're writing is a version of that. Totally, totally. And I think, and I think the, two, the two writing for the screen and writing for the page, they feed into each other all the time. I, I got very good advice um, very early on when I was writing a few episodes for a really rather terrible ITV series, but it had a very, very experienced producer who was very patient with me and he knew I was a very inexperienced screenwriter who had got this job by hook or by crook, probably through favoritism or whatever. And he said to me, you need always to remember, you, you must always know where your characters are and what they're doing, even when we don't see them. So if your character leaves the script for whatever reason, you need to know where they've gone or what they're doing when they come back. And it's very good advice because it makes you it makes you think of the story as, as being something much bigger than your record of it on the page or in the script, something that's got a sort of three dimensions to it and that carries on regardless of what you're doing. So it, 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 I think it makes, you, it makes you think much harder about continuity. It's terribly tempting, especially in novels, to forget about continuity and to allow characters just to serve a purpose and then disappear. And I think readers and viewers can't stand that. I think they... They, they get snared often on a little detail and think, well, where did she go? And why is she taking so long to come back? I don't know about you, but quite often I'm, I'm, I'll be watching some Netflix show and I get very impatient with how time seems to slow down. I think, well, they said the bomb is going off in 10 minutes. Well, it's been 20 minutes and the bomb still <laughs> hasn't gone off. Um, <clears throat> so details like that, I think it, it, it's a very good discipline to as the producer said, always to be aware of what all the characters are doing, not just the ones that you're focusing on. Uh, what the one that I find more annoying is the, and I obviously this is a necessary thing, but the compression of time to an unrealistic degree, whereby you get things like and NCIS Los Angeles is infamous for this. Uh, characters will just somehow be able to get across Los Angeles in the space of about five minutes yes. uh, or less. <laughs> and, and you're like, that's, what <laughs> yeah i think i think i think especially californian based shows have it have it lucky because the sun is just always bright the whole time so there isn't that that english thing of, oh night is coming on um, True. but the the point about where do characters go i actually that's a very good one and i keep that in mind no matter what i'm writing it uh it ties in almost to something that comes up a lot in video games writing oh interesting uh right. which is the idea that sort of you need to know everything, but only 20% of what you know will ever actually be presented to the audience. Yeah. Uh, but you still need to know it so that you can be consistent in your presentation of what the audience does see. 
Yes, it, it sort of feeds your confidence as a storyteller, doesn't it? You, mm. you know, there's a kind of, and it leaves an impression. Even the stuff that you don't show will leave an impression. It's, I feel the same about research. I, I do a lot of research before starting a writing project. And a lot of it actually is just about building my own confidence. Um, so I'm currently working on a, an historical novel set in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And I've been reading all sorts of stuff that I may not use, but it simply helps me to know what the characters are eating and wearing. And it helps me get a sense of, of what makes them tick, I suppose. Well, it's it's an immersion that then allows you to improvise, I think. It's, it's, uh, I had a similar conversation with Greg Rucker a few episodes ago in regards to characters and getting to know characters well enough that they, it feels as if they're talking to you, you know, and that's because you've, you've written them so much and gotten to know them so well. And I think research is the same fundamental principle that if you know your subject well enough, then you can improvise around it, you can fictionalize it, you can make things up that will ring true to anybody else who knows about the subject. Because, of course, we all know there's, there's everybody has it. Everybody has one area of knowledge or expertise where when they watch a TV show or read a book or watch a movie and something happens that is completely just out of order for that profession, completely absurd, you know, we sort of laugh and, and mock and say, well, that's that's ridiculous, that would never happen. Um, and you want to avoid, and that's inevitable, it's going to happen, but you want to avoid those as much as possible. And that's what research allows you to do. No, it's absolutely true. But also there comes a point where you have to put the research aside yes. and just tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a great mound of books beside me on my desk here, and I've I've been avoiding getting distracted by them as much as I can recently because it is just slowing the whole process up. Well, and it's so easy to fall down that rabbit hole and get... And this is a question that I get asked all the time by people, you know, how much research is enough? And it's like, well, you'll never feel like it's enough. No. But at some point you have to feel like you have done enough that you can at least make a start. I mean, I, I don't know about you. Do you continue to read around a subject while you're writing or do you try and get all that done before you start? Oh, no, it's a constant. So I, I keep picking up books to take to bed that are somehow germane to the book and I at the same time I often avoid reading contemporary fiction um, in case I get demoralized by how brilliant it is or in case I copy it without realizing it <laughs> which is hard um, uh, the copying thing yes I mean I, I I kind of resigned myself to that a long time ago um, I I try not to obviously but I think you know we are all the sum of our experiences and our influences and it's impossible to write without having those in in mind, uh, without those having an influence on what you're writing. So I kind of abandoned myself to that a long time ago and just resigned myself to the idea that at least in the rough draft, I am going to probably sound like whichever book I am currently enjoying the most on my pile. And if you're challenged, if you're challenged, you can just say, "Oh, it was a homage." Yeah. <laughs> well, what I try and do is try. I try and iron those out in the revision. Uh, you know, I don't worry about them in the rough draft, but then when I come to do the the revisions and the, you know, the sort of the versions that will go off to readers and my agents and my view, then I try to iron out those, the more obvious of those influences at any rate. Are you a, are you a great reviser? I am. I am. I'm a, I'm one of those people who writes uh, a rough draft very quickly 
and then does lots of revision and passes on it uh, to oh, lucky, sort of lucky to finesse you. the voice. Lucky you. A, a, a fast first draft is something I've never managed. <laughs> but I do, the bit of writing I really, really love is the revisions. I, once I know I've got a version of the story down, I've built my rickety bridge, then I start to enjoy myself. But uh, it's getting that first draft down for me is like getting blood from a stone. And it, it's getting harder rather than easier as I get uh, yes. older, I find. <laughs> Maybe because I'm becoming more and more self-critical. Yeah, no, lots of writers have said exactly the same thing to me on this show, that, yeah, you'd think it should get easier, and yet somehow it gets more difficult. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, let, let's uh, go into the, the process of that then a little. So how do you – what's your spark for a novel? Because uh, you are fairly prolific as well. You know, you write at a fairly good pace. So what's your sort of system for, oh, that's a good idea, or this is a good character, or this is a, a subject I want to write about? How do you go about beginning? Usually I choose the idea because it's cho- it, it's it's chosen me. It's usually a, an idea that's just sticking and won't go away. Um, however much I try to think of something else, it's just there. So the book I'm working on at the moment is very loosely based on the youth of the Cornish poet Charles Causley and his mother, who is a character who fascinates me. Um, She was a largely uneducated washerwoman who happened to produce this one child who happened to be a genius. Um, And So their relationship fascinated me and I think with all my books, certainly the last 10 or so, they've started because of an unanswered question, which I can only answer by writing the book. And in this case, it was what made Charles Causley decide when he came home from the Second World War to live with his mother for the rest of her life, which was quite a long time. Um, What made him choose to go back to his childhood home, this little small-minded Cornish town after he'd seen the world and had travelled as the war enabled a lot of young men to do. So that's the unanswered question and the book is trying to answer it. And I think fiction, especially fiction that's based on real people, can sometimes do things that official scholarly biographies can't because, of course, biographies are limited in, in their obligation to tell the truth, whereas fiction can be speculative and can join the dots and say, well, if that, then maybe this, and see where it takes you. Um, so I'm, I'm at the moment in that rather strange stage where I'm really letting go of my little life raft of fact about Charles Causley, and I'm getting deep into the totally made up stuff. And it's making me very nervous indeed, because there are a lot of old men with beards in Cornwall who revere Charles Causley <laughs> and are very happy with the idea of him as being a man who had no love life whatsoever. And because of the sort of novels I write, Causley will have a love life <laughs> in my version. It'll be a tortured one, but there will be one. Um, yeah. So it's, I start off, as I say, with that unanswered question. And then I tend to do a hell of a lot of reading around it to build up a kind of quarry of ideas and in this case it was reading a lot about um early 20th century laundry and you know the kind of work that an unskilled woman could have done and what it involved and also looking at education and the kind of education Causley would have received in 
in the schools in Launceston. And then I went on to looking at a lot of detail about the Second World War Navy, and in particular coders, because Causley was one of the first coders to be trained up. Um, this was after Bletchley Park had begun to crack the German codes. And what we then had to do was to train up um, less skilled but fairly clever soldiers and sailors to be able to put messages in and out of code swiftly. Uh, and Causley was one of those guys. And that that is one of those bits of research that suddenly caught fire for me because I suddenly realised here was the most perfect metaphor for a man who clearly was not comfortable expressing his emotions directly and would go on to become an intensely personal poet who somehow hides himself in these very personal poems. And I thought, actually, that coding training maybe unwittingly fed what would become his poetic art. It gave him the formula that would enable him to express himself, but in code for the rest of his life. And as you say, in fiction, the beauty is that even if that wasn't true, you know, even if that wasn't actually the case, you can... You can make, I can the make case. a damn good case for it. Yes. Case. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you <laughs> exactly. can, well, and it's often said that paradoxically fiction has to make more sense than real life, that readers demand that fiction makes some kind of sense and that things are connected and that there are these linkages. Oh, absolutely. Just as the characters have to be more um, logical than real people ever are more consistent yes yes more consistent if you put real people on the page they come across as being completely psychotic (laughs) um (laughs) you have to smooth them out no end but like i say but you can you're in a position with fiction to make those linkages and to to join those dots as you said you know and make those connections so i mean so while you're doing all this research and this reading and you're having these ideas and as you say coming across something like the coding and thinking ah this could be the key to the whole thing how are you do you keep everything in your head or are you taking copious notes no i'm i take copious notes i'm a i'm an inky writer so i write my first and my second draft in longhand oh wow and i tend to take my notes in the same notebook that i write the book in so the notes are at one end of the notebook like a kind of what George Eliot called her quarry, and the gradually emerging prose of the of the story is at the other end. So I've got it all in my hands. And it, it means I end up with this terrifyingly vulnerable piece of work that I could all too easily leave behind on a train or forget <laughs> I've left in the garden when it rains. Um, but it, it's a process that works for me. And it, I, it means if I'm having a bad day, if the book is just not not moving, I can flip the notebook over and just sit down and make myself read the notes again. Um, and I will often come across things I noted in a library or whatever, which I've forgotten, which are a really useful stepping stone for getting the book moving again. Yeah, I do that as well. If I'm not so much if I'm stuck, maybe, but if I'm just having one of those days where it's not you know, the words aren't coming or whatever. Yeah, we all have that. I think I think the hardest thing is learning to be relaxed about um, those sort of cognitive pauses that we all get where, where it isn't flowing. It's not It's not a crisis. I think that the, it's all too easy to think, oh my God, I'm getting writer's block. You're not. You're just not ready to write a bit more yet, I think. Yeah. I, and in fact, I think often when when writers complain that they're blocked, the problem isn't that they're blocked, it's that they're trying to write too soon. 
and and I think that their, their ideas aren't they haven't had enough ideas yet as it were they they've had their one idea but actually there's a lot to be said for letting that one idea steep in the kind of compost heap of other ideas so I I I I do dip in and out of the research sometimes I'll I'll have written three or four chapters and then I suddenly think actually no I'm not quite ready to carry on yet and I'll go back to the research and I'll go back to a an archive or a library and and do some more digging around and my my grand theory as it were on block is that simply you're right that that it's not that we're blocked it's that you're not ready to write but I think a lot of that comes from even if you have done you know enough research and enough thinking and what have you I think a lot of it comes from the fear that what you're about to write will be no good Uh, yeah well that that never goes away no exactly that's (laughs) a fear that we all have to get over the spiteful inner critic and also i think social media doesn't help because of course writers tend to follow other writers on twitter or whatever and inevitably you keep seeing people saying oh i've written another two thousand words i'm feeling really good you think i've written 30 words all week um and i think you just have to learn to be calm about it and to accept that we all produce our work at, at a different pace and i get comfort from the fact that however slowly a work seems to be going for me i am still fairly regular my books seem to appear at fairly regular intervals so uh you have to you know take the long-term view and yeah. not panic about the week-to-week view if this show has a theme it is without a doubt that you know whatever works for you you should carry on doing and that everybody does work differently and has different work rates and paces and uh and it, the only way you can discover what yours is is to do it and gain that experience it's very true and i think that you know there's no magic bullet i think i think if there is a magic bullet it's self-knowledge and i think i think very young writers especially often are so young they don't yet know themselves very well and I always encourage, if I work with writing students, I always encourage them to do, whether it's going into psychotherapy or keeping a diary or even going to drama classes, to pursue activities that will help them to know themselves and their limitations better. Because ultimately, you are, you are your own quarry. All your writers, all your characters are going to be elements of you. And the better you know yourself, the more rounded those characterizations are likely to be. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the uh, I've said this before. The the writer's job, essentially, the the greatest asset that a writer can have is their empathy for you know other people who aren't them. Because, as you say, the only thing we really have to draw on is ourselves, and so beyond that, the only thing we can draw on is our impressions of the lives of other people. And to do that takes an enormous amount of empathy. And you're constantly projecting yourself into your characters shoes and imagining how you would respond in their situation so uh i mean you mentioned younger writers and sort of working with younger writers you as we said were pretty young yourself when you started in this so how do you think you've changed uh not necessarily in the content of your work although obviously that's going to be a part of it but how do you think you've changed in terms of your approach to the work and your your processes and your sort of your motivations to do it over the years i think the biggest change is i've slowed down i've become far more um disciplined but also more more self-critical but i hope in a useful way um 
And I've certainly taken steps to calm my writing down. My my early books are very, like a lot of young books, they show off, they're, they're full of stylistic tics and extravagant phrases. And I've learned that those don't work. I've learned to aspire to a style which the reader, I hope, won't even notice. Um, I want the reader to become lost in the story, not to be noticing my writing. And that that takes a lot of um, self-discipline, I think, in terms of, of, of curbing your, your urge to show off. <laughs> so often the, my rewrites will be about calming the prose down, taking out the bits that I especially admired at the moment I was writing them. I, I find that as well. Don't you think that that's, I mean, and you must have seen this, all creative people, I find, as we get older, uh, no matter whether writers, musicians, songwriters, you know, what, librettists, whatever, painters, are all, we all seem to, as we age, and as we gain that wisdom and experience of having done this now for, you know, a few decades or whatever, we all seem to be looking for, as you say, the kind of the simplest, the essence of what we're doing rather than those elaborate flourishes. I find that quite interesting just from a sort of personal development perspective. It is interesting, isn't it? And it's about communication, really. I suppose whatever your art form, ultimately your work succeeds if you communicate successfully and if you baffle or you you risk losing the audience. So. yeah, and I think I think of course that's something that comes with not just with maturity, but with an element of success as well. As you become more and more aware of your readership, um, and certainly if you're like me, quite a, a social media junkie, <laughs> you're very aware of your readership because they're constantly in touch with you. Your readers are constantly sending you messages, asking you how things are going, which on the one hand is rather nice and sometimes is completely nightmarish because you, you <laughs> just want them to go, go right away until you've finished. Um, and I do occasionally just remove myself and close down all my accounts um, so I can hear myself think. Yeah, I, I know a few writers who do that, yeah take a hiatus but don't you think it's interesting that it's us the artists who drive that i mean you said for example you know in your earlier novels there were things that you've these flourishes and stuff you realize now don't work but clearly they do for readers and they certainly did at the time for readers and i think most readers would still happily you know sort of go back and read those older books maybe discover your work anew and they would say that it does work so I just, and there's no real sort of answer to this. I just find it really interesting that it's it's always driven by us. There's something within the artist, within the creator, that seems to want to uh, shave off the extraneous things and find the essence of what we're doing. Maybe it's about confidence, because I think I think if you if you grow in confidence, you dare to be plainer in your writing. I think plain writing does take confidence. Um, it's a bit like you know, feeling feeling you have to wear showy clothes to get attention rather than just a plain white shirt. And I think there's a purity that most of us aspire to as we get older in our in our whether our writers or sculptors or whatever, as a kind of direct purity. It's, it's one of the things I've I've learned again from screenwriting that I I keep bringing sideways into my novel writing. Is this thing of um, 
cutting out the extraneous and and looking for the moments that really work in a scene and maybe getting in later and getting out earlier. I, I think this also speaks to writing for ourselves, uh, which again is you know is easier to do as a novelist than a screenwriter. Um, but again, you touched on it right at the start when you were saying that uh, your first couple of novels you really wrote, you know, almost as a lark, not really thinking yes. that they'd get published. But ironically, because of that, they were the novels that brought you to the attention of agents. Yes, it's true. And I suppose it, it takes a certain discipline to, to, to maintain that sense of writing just for yourself. And certainly I think first drafts, you are writing for yourself. And it's when you rewrite, you're thinking, you're thinking more of your readers and what will my reader think at this point? What will they feel at that point? Whereas in the first draft, you really need to silence your readers and not think about them and just write for your, write for your own pleasure because that's what gets you through it after all. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you, I've had this conversation so many times, you know, if you're not excited about what you're writing, uh, especially something the length of a novel, forget it because yeah, you've, you just you, won't get through it. Yeah, no. you, you're going to spend yeah. weeks writing that thing and then months promoting it and revising it and editing it and trying to get other people to read it. And it's got to be something that you love. I think that's what's always terrified me about genre fiction, um, where so often it's it's all about the plot and the plot has to be absolutely watertight and you know probably right from the start what the plot's going to be, where the book's going to go. Um, and I think that would drive me mad. I, I, I never really know. I have a vague idea where my novels are going and how they're going to end. But in the first draft, I'm never entirely sure. And quite often the ending will take me by surprise. I suddenly realize, oh, my God, I'm there. Um, I thought I had two chapters to go, but I'm not. I'm there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I, I think you might be surprised, actually, I by the number of genre writers I know, some of whom have been on the show, uh, who have no outline whatsoever. They just start oh, writing. Really? They have a premise, and they start, and and they don't know who did it. And they'll and like you, the ending will surprise them. Uh, yes, I have heard crime writers. I've heard several crime writers say that it's essential that they don't know who did it, and that, mm. so they can have lots of believable suspects, and then they make their mind up about halfway through the book. Right. But then you'll also come across, you know, equally successful crime writers who know exactly who did it right from the start and plot yes. everything out in advance. And this again, touches on, you know, you do whatever works for you. So what is your revision method? I mean, it sounds like you're getting through the first draft is fairly sporadic in terms of your daily word count as it were. But then once you get to the end and you have the complete thing, that's, as you said, the part that you can enjoy because, and I enjoy revision just because at that point, all I'm doing is making it better. I don't have to worry about coming up with the story because I've done that and now I exactly. can just exactly. improve a book, it. There's a book there. You're just making it a prettier book. Yes, I, I well, because I write in longhand, um, the first thing I do when I finish that painful first draft is to type the whole thing up. And that in itself is an editorial process because I'll often make little changes as I'm typing. There are often bits where I can't read my own writing because the, I don't know, the, the cat has walked over the book <laughs> with wet paws or whatever. Um, and then I print it out in big spaced manuscript and I do another draft in ink on top of it. I don't rewrite every single word, but I, 
I find there's something about holding a pen in my hand that helps my thinking in a way that typing doesn't. So, um, but I, uh, that second draft is the first time often I've gone through the book in chronological order because I don't often write the book as it will end up. I'll often stay with one character and then write a sequence of chapters from another character's point of view, only then to muddle them all up later. Well, hang, on um, a, so, hang on a moment. You do that without, and that's crazy. You, you don't write linear, but you also no. don't have an outline. No, not really. Oh, my goodness. I want each character to have a, a believable internal life and a kind of voice. And it's often easier to maintain that, I find, if you stay with that character and write. That, this is assuming you have more than one viewpoint. Um, so I will write the chapters from a certain character's viewpoint and then from another character and then another, and then I'll weave them together. And that way you, you, it's easier to then maintain that sense of different people who are not all blurring into each other. I, I often think the thing that makes a book feel realistic psychologically isn't what the characters know, but what they don't know. It's their ignorance of each other. And you can preserve that better if you write them one at a time. Um, so the book I'm working on at the moment has two viewpoints, the, the hero and his mother. And initially, I've been swinging between the two as I'm writing it, because they've both been living together in very, very close proximity. But now I've reached the point where Charles Corsley goes off to the war, and they hardly see each other for the rest of the book. So I'm now making myself just stick with him. And I'm going to write all his chapters right through to the end of the book. And then I'll do his mother's chapters, the, the remaining ones, so that I can maintain a sense of them not knowing anything about what the other is doing. That is fascinating. Wow. Anyway, sorry, that, so I got off track. <laughs> there no, no, talk, no. Well, was it, just so, I've never heard anybody writing like that before. No, I, and I have taken it to extremes. I mean, uh, my novel notes from an exhibition um, is told from God, I think five four or five viewpoints. And I wrote all, what the one thing I knew when I started that book was that I, I wanted each chapter to feel like a short story, to be a thing in itself, self-contained story, like a nugget of story. And so I did that. But then I realized I had a kind of panic attack. So I realized I have no idea what order these chapters should go in because you could throw them up in the air and they would work in any order in a way. And I, I literally, I delivered it like that to my editor. I said, look, I've got all these chapters and I don't know, help, help. And we literally, we just, we just spread them out over her kitchen table. Um, and she helped me paste them together in a way that worked. And then I, then I did a, and then I did a rewrite after that. But it, it was a very interesting process and exhausting, but I, I, I have done it more than once since then. Um, I love, I love those multiple personality, multiple viewpoint novels because, they feel, for me, they feel intensely lifelike, especially if, as I do, that I often write about families and the damage families do to each other. Um, and, and it's a very good way, I think, of evoking those terrible ripples of misunderstanding within a family if you, you have these chapters that are written completely independently of each other, which you then bring together. Yeah. Wow, that's an, what an amazing way to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but it seems to work for me. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, we got off track there a little. So, getting back to revision. So, you've done mm. this. You've done this first draft. You've got these chapters, whether you know what order they're going to be in or what. Type them all up. Type them yeah. all up, and then 
do you then from that point on is everything done on the computer no 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 so the the next draft i will again do in ink on a printout so i've got that printed out first draft and i'm writing stuff around it and all over it and i end up with a very very messy manuscript with lots of arrows crossings out and so on and then you retype it presumably then i retype it and from that point on everything will happen on the computer i mean usually that's the point when i will submit so what I send to my agent and editor will usually be effectively a third draft, I suppose. Right. Yeah, so I mean, it, nobody's um, first draft is actually their first draft. No, that's, no, no. <laughs> that's a misnomer. <laughs> so do, um, do you send straight to your editors, to your editor and agent first, or do you send out to sort of friends and beta readers? No, it goes straight to agent and editor. I mean, I, I usually at that point will do a printout and get my get my husband to read it who's a very, very critical reader. <laughs> um, but he's reading it at the same time as your agent and editor. Yes, yes, he is. And he's a he's a very, very much a trusted reader. Um, he doesn't hold back. If he gets bored, he'll say so. If something's inaccurate, he'll say so. Um, and it's, I find it very useful having his feedback alongside those of my editor and my agent. Have you ever considered sending out to readers before turning it in? Or is this just always the way you've worked? Oh, I wouldn't dare. No, this is just the way I've always worked, and it's it's habit forming. And I think, I think a lot of it is down to trust. And I'm I I have a really wonderful. I've always had the same agent, and I have a really wonderful editor who I, I trust totally. Um, I don't really feel the need of many other viewpoints at that at that stage. Um, quite often, she will give it to people with my knowledge to read um, if she's not sure about things or whatever. And sometimes I think the one exception is when there's something technical I need to be absolutely sure of. So my last novel, Take Nothing With You, which is very much about playing the cello, um, I got a couple of professional cellists to read a fairly early draft of the book just to be absolutely sure that I wasn't getting technical things wrong. I mean, I, I am a cellist, but I'm not a professional and I I wanted to be absolutely sure. And thank God I did because there were things I realised that were, I discovered were wrong in my own technique of playing <laughs> cello, <laughs> um, which I was passing on to my characters erroneously. But that does make perfect sense, yes. The calling on professionals for an area in which you're not a professional. I mean, I obviously my stuff is all I write genre thrillers and what have you, but I do the same, you know, I will go to people and say, okay, can you tell me about this particular, you know, this one particular aspect of something, uh, just to make sure that I've got it right. And like you, what I what I often find is that not only will they answer my question, but they will also tell me something that makes me realize, oh hang on, I can use this and go further. I, you know, just, oh, I, totally. I may have yes. something technically wrong, but also they've given me an idea for something that can go beyond what I've written. It's lovely when that happens. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't yeah. happen that often, but it is. It is. No, no. Um, and then, so from that point on, it's just the usual process of getting your notes back from your editor and, and revision and off to off to print. It goes. Yes, although I do hate, I hate having to give it up to the printer. Um, it tends to have to be prized from my hands because I, <laughs> I I am a tinkerer and I keep spotting things I want to tweak and change and yeah sooner or later you just have to accept okay this is even if in my head I'm telling myself this is just a version that we're printing the book is still in my head um, 
that that's the lovely thing of course if you if you then get to adapt it for a screen or or the stage or whatever you have a chance to to rewrite it some more yeah never finished only abandoned as they say exactly exactly so when do you uh, and i'm again i asking this question specifically of you because i know that you are continually working and quite prolific when do you start thinking about the next book are you thinking about it as soon as you send the manuscript off or do you wait a while or you know how how does the next one come to you it 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 varies usually i i start to get an idea about halfway through the publicity process um and i know when it's serious because i then start to resent the fact i'm having to go to book festivals rather than <laughs> going home to write um and at the moment i'm i'm in a rather strange position where I, I i've known for ages what my next book is going to be and i'm not entirely sure i want to stick with that idea but unfortunately my publishers are really keen on it so i may just have to do it um but it's another historical book and i'm not sure i can face doing two historical ones in a row um and it's also i know going to be a really sad book and i'm not sure i can face <laughs> doing another sad book at the moment so we we will see we will see but um I, I think my my note to self is usually to put off as long as i can committing to what the next book is going to be because I, I want to be absolutely sure that whatever the idea is it's one that's going to stick and that will hold my interest so um yeah maybe you need to write a really happy screenplay in between that would be lovely wouldn't it <laughs> <laughs> You live, for people who aren't aware, you live literally on a farm, on a working farm. On a working farm at the very end of Cornwall. So it's the, I am the westernmost novelist in the country. I, oh, really? I, beat, John Le, <laughs> I beat John Le Carre by about five miles. Um, yeah, and it's, it's an amazing spot, but it is remote. So how do you, bearing in mind that you are working, you know, on the farm occasionally as well, mm. uh, as well as your writing, how do you manage to divide your time between the two? And how do you relax and wind down from the writing when it's time to go and work on the farm? Well, the farming, farming, it has to be said, is a lot less demanding than it used to be um, because we're, we've been gradually changing the way we farm. When I first moved here, we were growing potatoes and cauliflowers and those had to be harvested by hand. And it was a very, very full-on backbreaking process um thank god now we we rent out quite a lot of land for those crops to be grown by other people so i have a lot more time to write um and i do miss it actually i miss the discipline of knowing that we were harvesting cauliflowers three days a week so i only had two days in which i could write now i have almost unlimited time um so it's i rather love it when there's a day when we have to i don't know uh, tb testing the cattle or something and I, i it takes me away from my desk I think most writers need to have an activity in their life that's not writing, but where they, their brain can still be tinkering with a book in there away from the desk. So I, I now do a, I do a lot of gardening and when I'm working in the garden that I can still be writing in my head and it, it but I'm not actually writing. It's very, it's, it's a, it's a fine distinction, but it's very useful. I think time away from your manuscript is a good thing. And, uh, Time is a very good editor, especially. So especially if I've recently finished a draft, I won't leap straight into doing the next draft. I will make myself have some time off so that when I come back to it, I can see it with clearer eyes and read it with a more critical faculty, I suppose. Yeah, no, I absolutely, I'm 100% in agreement uh, with you on that. I always try to leave at least a week and sometimes if I can, you know, two or three weeks 
between revisions of a draft for exactly that reason, because as you say, time is a wonderful editor. And it's amazing how quickly we forget, or at least I do anyway, it's amazing how quickly I forget, certainly, what I've written. Uh, yeah, and I mean the specific turns of phrase. Yeah, and, and in order in order to do that next draft well, you need to become slightly more like a reader and mm. less like a writer. And if you leave a bit of time, you have a better chance of reading it as your reader will read it. It, it literally only takes me about two or three weeks, and I can you know if I if I leave that time and then go back to a manuscript, it is almost as if I'm reading something written by a complete stranger. It is Very fascinating. <laughs> and don't you find as well that of course. You're a different person by the time you finished the book than you were when you started it. Oh, yes. So quite often when you come to do your second draft, you you realise that the, the beginning and the end of the book don't really match. It's as if they were written by different people. <laughs> you have to kind of smooth it over. I think sometimes that's because your intention has changed. You intended it to be one kind of book and it became slightly different in the process. I've definitely had that happen, yeah. You often have to go back to those early chapters and, and slightly change the alignment so that it's smoother. I, I had that actually quite profoundly uh, in the la- the last full novel that I wrote, which was the second uh, in the Brigitte Sharp thriller series, where I, I I had exactly that, that I was really struggling about a third of the way into it or something. And I had my outline, I had my plot, but I was really struggling with it. And I I realised that I was... And it was one of those moments where it felt like the book wanted to be a different kind of book to what I had expected to write. And it felt as if I was struggling with the book rather than just sort of giving in and going, okay, we'll write the kind of book that you want to be. And once I did that, it all came so much more easily. And that is a very strange, I'd never had that experience before. It was very strange. Yeah. So Patrick, uh, what do you think you're pretty good at? Oh. God, no idea. Um, as a writer, <laughs> yes, yes. I think, um, oh, I don't know. I think characterization. I think, I think over the years I've got better at writing characters that actually feel as if they carry on living when the book is finished. I mean, that's always what I've aspired to do. Mm. Um, I think the thing I'm least good at that was is, going to be my next question. What do, you, uh, what do you wish you were better at? Yes. I wish I was better at getting on with it. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, no, seriously, because I think, I think sometimes I get, I get a kind of myopia in my storytelling. and I can feel I'm just drilling down and down and down into one little moment in a story and not getting on with telling the story. Um, and again, that's something where screenwriting is very good for me. It, it, I, if I apply to my novel the discipline you have to bring to writing a 55-minute television episode, it, it really helps me focus on just tell the story. Yeah, because you really can't do that in a screenplay, can you? you can't. No, exactly. You can't hang around. Yeah. Well, unless it's a very particular kind of show, but most screenplays, yeah, you can't drill down into those moments. I mean, that, and that's where, the, that's where the collaboration comes into play, because that's where you rely on your director and the actors and everybody else involved to effectively make those moments where you're drilling down into uh, an emotion or a moment, but do it visually or, you know, with a, with a certain look from the actor rather yes, than trust, in the world. Trust the actor rather than putting it in the script. Mm. Yeah. My, 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 some of my screen writing has ridiculously long, um, 
stage notes, yeah, stage directions. <laughs> and I know it's because as a novelist, you're so used to having total control. And I then have to remove all those before I submit because I realise that that kind of bad form. You have to trust the actor and the director to do that bit. <laughs> yeah. And Anthony Horowitz years ago, uh, when Foyle's War was uh, still in the air, said, yeah. I, I saw it in an interview or something, I saw him say that uh, he would write reams and reams, these really long, you know, sort of bits of dialogue for Michael Kitchen to deliver. And obviously Michael Kitchen is, you know, an actor par excellence, extraordinary uh, screen presence, but even so, you know, some of these things would be a struggle. And he would look at the script and go, it's okay, I can uh, look at these massive long uh, soliloquy and say, it's okay, I can do that with a look. And, and I was like, are, are you sure? And, oh yeah, it's fine. And it was, it was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As you say, trust again. No, it's funny how sometimes actors though will take you on one side and say, I, I know you've written these lines, but what is she actually thinking? What's her process or whatever? Um, on my show, Man in the Orange Shirt, one of the actors um, who had to have sex a lot in the course of the hour of the show um, got me to talk him through what the sex meant every time this character had sex. It was a fascinating uh, conversation. And actually, it really showed in his performance. He he had then mapped out emotionally what all these different sex scenes meant for him. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, what is, finally, what is something that you've read recently where the, the writing, the quality of the writing really impressed you and why? Oh, I've, funny enough, it's a novel by Sally Vickers, who is a writer who's often um, patronised, I think, by the literary establishment who regard her books as as cosy and they're, they're anything but. It's a novel of hers, it's not her most recent, it's called The Librarian. And it's set in the 50s about a young librarian full of ideals who comes to be the children's librarian in a small community. And the thing I find completely brilliant about it is partly the storytelling. She's very deft at just moving the story on. But it's also the the restrained savagery of it um, that you keep getting these passages in the book that are like little minefields of emotion, but she's tamped it all down. So without laying on lots of 1950s detail, she's managed to create a very 1950s emotional feel to it. It feels like a book that's written by somebody who has worn very constricting clothes, I suppose. Um, and, and like a lot of the best writing, it's it's maddening me because I can't see how she's done it. I want to. It's like killing a butterfly. I want to take it to bits to work out why why it works so well. It's a very good sign. But in doing so, you would destroy the beauty of it. Yeah. No, totally, totally. <laughs> so, Patrick, where can people find you online? Oh gosh, um, well, I have a website, galewarning.org, um, and I'm I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook. And uh, I, I welcome distractions all too all too readily. <laughs> all right, then. And what work of yours would you recommend that our listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you before? Oh, that's a difficult one. I think if they if they like historical fiction, they should read a place called Winter. Um, if they like contemporary fiction, that's quite psychological. Maybe look back a little to my novel from about two thousand, which is called Rough Music. 
Um, that that seems to be a book that detonates in a lot of people's imaginations when they read it. I, I think because it's about a really, really terrible family holiday. Uh, we've all had those. <laughs> we certainly have. <laughs> Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anthony, it's been a delight. Thank you for having me. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing, and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters who help keep the show going. If you want to join them and become a patron to get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, take part in Q&A episodes and more, go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing and make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that's also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.